Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2023. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are... Tori, they, them. And Della, she, her. And uh, I need something. I I didn't have a clever lead in this time. Mm. Mm. Oh, no. (laughs) You just have to come up with some really obscure way to either talk about your head or um, some word that no one knows except for very old English people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Can can we both? What's an old word for, for a head? Well, you know, you notice that in this fan fiction, he says, like, put the old pumpkin or the old melon or, oh, yeah, you know, like true. stuff yes. like he's always referring to his head with different monikers. Uh, mobile hat rack for that one. <laughs> <laughs> mobile hat rack is good. <laughs> if we can refer to a random word by the first letter initial, that's good, too. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Wooster's always saying stuff like eggs and bee. You know, yes, like the yes. B is for bacon. I did, that's, that's one, one of his affectations. Line yeah. is eggs and bee. And I was like, <laughs> sure. That's either a typo or some it's, English thing I don't know. That sounds like a current young person thing. <laughs> I know. Like, sometimes it definitely, like, there's a point where people are talking about dudes. And I don't know. Like, I was like, this was, when was this written? We need to bring back eggs and B. <laughs> uh, when was what, the fanfic written? Yes. Okay. Well, I, I mean, we should get to that in a moment. <laughs> But before we reach the fanfic itself, I guess we should probably like lead in a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, we're discussing something called Scream for Jeeves today. And the reason is that I just really want to talk about P.G. Woodhouse because I've been reading some lately and I, I really like P.G. Woodhouse. But I might be the only person in this group who like has any familiarity. No, I'm Mark Murdoch. I, I like P.G. 13 Woodhouse better. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer R Woodhouse. Well, that's too too rich for me. I don't know, I don't know what R Woodhouse would, <laughs> would be like. <laughs> NC-17 Woodhouse. Oh, <laughs> I can think about where that would go. That's probably out there. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, have either of you like actually read or or watched any like Jeeves and Wooster experienced any PG Woodhouse before I kind of forced this issue? I I always meant to watch Jeeves and Wooster because I hear it's good and, and maybe I did catch some of it but like not enough to really remember it and no one ever read it so <laughs> there we go I, I saw some clips on TikTok with Hugh Loring and Stephen Fry yeah and I was like yeah I should check that out right mm-hmm. now I'm here <laughs> yeah. yeah that's basically me right because you know I love Hugh Laurie but I yeah. just yeah never never got a I don't know, never remembered to do it. And this would have been the perfect opportunity, but I was just swamped this week. So basically yeah, well, I was yeah. just sitting and I had to actually sit down and read this fanfic instead of listening to it on my e-reader in the car or walking my dog because all we had was a physical copy. And don't get me wrong, I love the opportunity to sit down and read something, mm-hmm. but it did take time. Yeah, and I was a little bit, I was going to watch some shows, but I got suddenly busy with community theater tech stuff. Yeah. So I've been doing that instead. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Well, okay. How about PG Woodhouse? So I only this week found out you say Woodhouse, not Wodehouse, because it's spelled W-O-D-E. And I wanted to do the magic E rule and make that an O sound. But apparently that's wrong. Um, good thing I learned that before this recording. Mm-hmm. Anyway, PG Woodhouse, he's a celebrated English humorist. He wrote a lot of stuff like 81 to 75. And so... One of the things in this volume that we're reading is the author of this fanfic that we're going to discuss, P.H. Cannon, comparing and contrasting kind of the works and fandoms of Woodhouse, Lovecraft, and uh, that guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle? Yeah, Arthur Conan Doyle, right. Maitante Conan? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. The guy who wrote Maitante Conan, Detective Conan, which is still going. Um, Anyway, because they're all like old white guys from like a similar era who kind of are famous for a body of work that sort of remixes the same ideas over and over Mm -hmm. to you know a great effect and like they Mm. they end up with like these fandoms who like to mess with that stuff and like you know in the same way that people that uh what do you call them are they um not doyalists what's the opposite of a doyalist uh the you know, doyalists are people who like read the Sherlock Holmes stories as like 
you know, fiction written by Arthur Conan Doyle and what Watsonians in the same way that like Watsonians (laughs) will like work out the chronology and like background of like, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle characters. Like people have done the same. There's like a biography of Jeeves that like I probably could have tracked down to like in that same sort of way. Or like the people who like to take just the random shit that Lovecraft was writing about and be like, okay, here's the cosmology and how everything fits together perfectly. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, people do love to do that. Yeah, you know, yeah. The, the nerd instincts, right? Like these people kind of draw mm-hmm, out those mm-hmm. like similar right. like fandom nerd instincts. Now, Amada, this time you've you have an actual book here. I do. I have it from my sister's library. This is a copy of The Lovecraft Papers by P.H. Cannon. And it is a reprint of two things that he wrote. But Cannon is a, you know, Lovecraft scholar, author, person. Type that kind of kind of thing. Oh, not not canon as in the plural for canon. <laughs> <laughs> I think canon is involved. Oh my gosh, that was a throwback there. <laughs> um. Anyway, this volume, the Lovecraft Papers, is a reprint of two fanfics, but one is RPF mostly. Mm-hmm. Like the one is Pulp Time, and I guess it's both because it's like Lovecraft and Sherlock Holmes teaming up, right? Whatever. Mm-hmm. And the other one is Scream for Jeeves, which is the reprint. I think, of three stories that he wrote inserting, basically, Woodhouse's characters, Bertie Wooster and Jeeves, into a few Lovecraft stories. That's basically the idea. Yeah. Where were these published originally? You know what? I'm not completely sure. And that sounds like the kind of basic research I should have done. <laughs> well, let's see. Well, I didn't read any of the the stories or, <laughs> or the books, but I figure if this is like a book club podcast, as mm-hmm. we keep billing ourselves, there has to be somebody that just shows up, ha- hasn't read the book, and just wants to drink and gossip. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a role, <laughs> and I'm happy to take on that role. <laughs> <laughs> Are you looking up for Scream for Jeeves there, Tori? I am. There's not a Wikipedia article for it, but it does say in. Um, Peter Cannon or PH Cannon's page um, that he it was written in 94 and published by Woodcraft Press spelled W-O-D-E. So I'm guessing right. that Woodcraft yeah. Press, I assume is just PH Cannon writing. Some yes, stuff, right. I'm, I'm going to or it's a small fan fiction community or something. I don't know. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's from 94. So it's decently old. It's, it's acceptably retro. We can talk about it. Indeed. I remember 94. It can't be that old. <laughs> well, it's funny, though, because it's quite, it's uh, written. Bad news. Bad news, Della. <laughs> oh, now it's happening. <laughs> what were you saying, Tori? Oh, no, I was just like, huh, I was going to comment on the fan fiction, but. Okay. Well, then, like, real quick first. Uh, I mean, that's not really what we're here for. I mean, you know, no, we're here for me to ramble. Yeah, right. of mm-hmm. course. Um, and talk about how old we are. <laughs> very. Mm-hmm. All I was going to say is, as you probably have picked up, what Woodhouse writes is comedy, mostly social satire about like upper class people with either too much money or too little money. And maybe, you know, social. Uh, so you, you generally some of them will have too much money and some of them will have too little money. Right. And then like maybe some people will fall in love and maybe you know, get into an unwise engagement and have to break it mm-hmm. off or be like seeking off. I don't know, like gambling. There, there's a lot of themes that reoccur, but his most famous characters are uh, Bertie Wooster and Jeeves. So are the Jeeves books, are they written in Wooster's voice? They it's, are. Okay. Yes, this, this is good pastiche. Yeah, this is. <laughs> okay. I I feel like I got that. Definitely it's pastiche right. because that's, I was thinking earlier, it was like, oh, I thought this would have been written a little earlier on because of the, well, a lot earlier on because the language is so like antiquated British. Like you just straight up expect it to come from um, like, yeah, like the early 1900s or whenever this is set, it may be 19, they mention Calvin Coolidge, I think. So generally speaking, the Jeeves and Wooster stories are set like, after the Great War, before World War II, in some kind of vague okay. like period in there, mm. but that's also when a lot of Lovecraft is set. So, I mean, I'm sure that was part of the impetus, right? Absolutely. Um. Oh, so so yeah, the fanfic. I guess should we talk about it? <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, the vol- <laughs> I'll, I'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> the volume is called Scream for Jeeves. That's a joke because one of the Jeeves books is called Ring for Jeeves. Oh. Um. 
And then it's a series of three stories and then an essay that I didn't really worry about and didn't bother photocopying for Tori. Did we talk about how what your interest in the series was? I think I picked up a volume, like one of the novels, one of the Jeeves and Wooster's novels off of a shelf at Brighton Bush Hot Springs some years ago and read it and really enjoyed it. But I feel like I'd like seen this before. Like I'd read Pulp Time. My sister had lent it to me. Like I'd been vaguely, vaguely aware these characters existed. I'd read the Lovecraft Woodhouse crossover in the Black Dossier, like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen Mm. by Alan Moore. And at that, whenever I read that, I was like, okay, sure, whatever. (laughs) But no, I just kind of randomly picked up a volume a few, some years back and really enjoyed it and have read mostly the G, some Jeeves and Wooster stories. Like there's a lot of them, but like some number of them and also some of his like standalone novels. Hmm. And I haven't really touched some of his like other series. Now is the Black Dossier, is that fan fiction? Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I actually went back and looked at the story in there too, just uh, just to contrast it a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, did I assume you probably read League of Extraordinary Gentlemen at some point? Because that's yeah. a thing someone people did, you know. Yeah, it is a thing people did or currently do. I don't know. Maybe um, <laughs> let's talk about how old we are again. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about even older stuff then. So yeah, uh, Scream for Jeeves. There's three stories in it. And each of them is set mainly in the action of a Lovecraft story and kind of trying to recontextualize them to greater or lesser extents with the Woodhouse characters. Well, and yeah, told again from Bertie Wooster's perspective. So to me, even though I've never read, um, there, what are the, the original series called something Jeeves, the Jeeves stories? I mean, yeah, they don't, I don't know. It's not like they have a title exactly. Okay. I think people just usually call them Jeeves and Wooster. You fast okay. two Jeeves. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, um, yeah, the it definitely feels like you said, like Jeeves and Wooster pastiche. So, like, but what's peppered in is is references that, first of all, the plots of Lovecraft stories, but also references that they're in a Lovecraft world. Like every mm-hmm. so often, they're like, oh, like a Shagas, you know. That that I found that very odd. Let's talk yeah, about that. Yeah, I actually found that very different within the first few stories. The first story is called Cats, Rats, and Birdie Wooster. And it's the rats in the walls, mm. um, except with Jeeves and Wooster, where um, the premise is that, you know, in the rats in the walls, there's like some guy who like goes to, like his ancestral home in like, I don't know, what is it? Scotland or something? Uh, Wales. Wales, Wales. And like, it's built over ruins and he goes down and finds out that like, actually, if you go way back, his ancestors were cannibals. And because anything having to do with your ancestry is just terrifying to Lovecraft, like Mm -hmm. your ancestry being anything other than like, you know, middle class English people. um, That's that's the main source of the horror. That sounds terrifying to me. (laughs) I mean, there's also rats in the walls, but honestly, that's not really the main point. It's not relevant. No. Like, I guess the implication, and this is kind of my problem with Lovecraft, and again, I guess that makes this good Lovecraft uh, pastiche as well, is that things are not clearly explained in Lovecraft stories and it's supposed to be, ah, this is horror. But like, um, yeah, I think the rats are supposed to be in the walls through some. Cause there's like caverns underneath. Right. But also it's supposed to be more horrific because you think like, and why were those there? But like, you could infer that they're, yeah, attracted to the, no, the dead bodies would have been. Aren't, aren't you know what? I don't know. Whatever. I did not reread the rats in the walls. I don't care. Aren't yeah, there, aren't there no just rats in some walls? Doesn't that just happen? Yeah, I mean, yes. Like, was it's, it, it's an was, old building? Was it this like a horrific amount of rats or something? Was it like the shining <laughs> well, blood elevator amount of rats or what? <laughs> in this story, and again, I didn't reread the rats in the walls either, so I'm gonna just go up. You never really see the rats, right? Yeah, I mean, the rats are kind of just the lead into like the delving yeah. underneath the, the you know, foundations of the house. I mean, how would you the see behavior. them? They're, they're in the walls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just the behavior of the cats that leads people to infer that there are rats. But then again, we never actually find out if there are are not rats. I think it has more to do with um the guy who owns the estate, this American man named... Mm, poor or something yeah de la poor and I, I believe i believe that's the narrator of the rats in the walls okay the story starts with a telegram from one of the reoccurring characters in the series one of 
uh, Bertie's school friends, who he's always kind of reluctantly helping out. Um, this is, wait, Captain Edward Tubby Norrie? So this is a different character. Well, whatever. Um, he, he kind of is calling for Bertie to help because, like, it, it, it's a weirdly thin premise because there's no particular reason for him to call Bertie and Jeeves. He says bring Jeeves because Jeeves is the only one who can get to the bottom yeah. of this mystery. That's very common in the stories where people think very, very highly of Jeeves's mental abilities for good reason. And so they're always calling, like, you know, for Jeeves's help and Bertie, you know, is kind of offended because, like, they don't think he can help or whatever. But... Uh, does Jeeves solve crimes in these um, stories? Mostly usually? he gets people out of awkward social entanglements. <laughs> and occasionally he, like, saves people from losing all their money on unwise gambling choices by making better gambling choices. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> and often he attempts to save Bertie from the horrible fashion choices that Bertie will otherwise mm. make. Well, and that all happens in here right oh, they're just a couple <laughs> oh well yeah except there's this well actually they kind of are there's okay not to skip ahead too much but in the last story there's this whole thing where they get into a like get into a fight because um Wooster goes and purchases a suit and Jeeves just hates it he, it's, this is an extremely common sort of thing in the story yeah right and he just it, but it's like even to the point where he refuses to like help him with any of his problems or like take his calls, even though that's his job, right? Jeeves is Wooster's man. He's you know whatever that means. Uh, he, uh, yes, he's a gentleman's gentleman, so he's like a butler attached to a person rather than a house. <laughs> a valet exactly. is yeah, the word. A valet, okay. But yeah, um, until you know, and eventually he you know gets rid of the suit in one way or another, but. And then they and can make peace Which again, would always, but... always happen in a yeah. story, is that either as leverage for Jeeves helping, or at the end of the story, in thanks for Jeeves helping, Bernie will reluctantly, you know, dispose of whatever, like, piece of clothing Jeeves loathes. Yeah, it sounds like good romantic comedy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, it's... <laughs> well, right, because, yeah, it's like this whole premise that, like, Jeeves is, has a great line about it where he's like, I cannot be associated with a man who would dress like that. He, it's even better than that. And we'll get oh, there. It's over but, here. Yeah. Um, after a good. So, yeah, they're both going to go help out at some place. Um, oh, and Jeeves, I said, as if the idea were merely a careless afterthought. When you pack my bag, please be sure to include my new suit, the one from Franklin Clothes. Oh, yes, because he's also, Wooster's also teasing Jeeves about it. <laughs> Surely not, sir, said Jeeves in a low, cold voice, as if he had, as if he had been bitten on the leg by a zoog. <laughs> I could see that I was in for yet another round in that colossal contest of wills which from time to time darkens our relationship. But fortified by the soothing beverage, I stood my ground. After a good deal of give and take, we reached a split decision. The garment in question would travel with me to the country, but not Jeeves. I do not wish to be placed in a position, sir, the man protested, where persons of refinement might misapprehend that I condone your wearing in public such Byzantine refuge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds so, like someone sleeping on the couch today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong about the odd couple vibes of, like, these whole stories. But anyway, that, that's that's this, like, extremely, extremely standard stuff put in this other, like, Lovecraftian atmosphere. Mm -hmm. But uh, we'll get back to that Zug line, though. In this first story, um... They kind of, they're just kind of like dragged along through the plot of um, Rats in the Walls. They don't really impact it enormously in this first story. There's still a couple of like ex delving down below underneath the house and discovering like the dark secrets underneath. And Jeeves, who is extremely well educated and also apparently personally associated with Art Arthur Mackin, who is like another, an influence on Lovecraft, mm -hmm. like a Welsh, Welsh mystic and, uh, and like weird fiction writer um which is also like very jeeves for him to like have associations with people and be very like educated on every topic or whatever um he kind of provides a lot of the the like lovecraftian exposition as they're like delving down and that sort of thing um but but really they don't impact the story which is kind of in i, I feel like they're more involved in the other ones there's a few scenes where like Bertie talks to De La Poor and it's they're kind of weird scenes because they're talking completely at cross purposes where like oh, yeah. the narrator guy from the Lovecraft story is delivering these Lovecraftian monologues about his ancestry and such. 
And, and then, like, occasionally Birdie will, like, put in a comment that, like, the Lovecraftian narrator guy just completely ignores. <laughs> and so the one that, that made me laugh was um, he's describing his, like, de la poor background. Some of the worst characters married into the family. Lady Margaret Trevor from Cornwall, wife of Godfrey, the second son of the fifth baron, became a favorite bane of children all over the countryside and the heroine of a particularly horrible old ballad not yet extinct near the Welsh border. A ballad, not the one by chance that starts, there was a young lady from Dorset who couldn't unfasten her corset. <laughs> I forget the middle part, but ends something like, whatever you do, my good man, don't force it. <laughs> yeah. And then the guy just ignores that and goes on with his like, <laughs> yep. and I, I feel like it's weird because it's, it, it, it almost makes the, the like, the Woodhouse characters kind of irrelevant phantoms, <laughs> but it's also kind of a good joke on like, I, I feel like that must be what talking to a Lovecraft character is like, is like, they've got things to say and by god they are going to say them well it's funny too because that whole dinner conversation is at first described as uh, yeah birdie has a reflection where he's like how the man wouldn't talk at all right and but then he's like oh there's one thing you know people love to talk about you know wells do people love to talk about is their ancestry so as soon as he gets him started that's when the (laughs) spiel goes and it's just it's so funny like because Knowing the Lovecraft vein, you know that's kind of what's going to happen, but you're seeing this all through the Wooster lens. Right. And Wooster himself is kind of, um, I don't want to say like frivolous, but like he's very dismissive. He's just sort of like taking things very lightheartedly all the time. Like I, his friend dies at the end of this story and he's just and he's like, like, oh, I, just, I need to find a new partner in, uh, in darts. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, that's exaggerated. I feel like Birdie's exaggerated a little bit. But yeah, the term that gets thrown around with the Jews and Wooster stories is mentally negligible, where like he's good natured and he's like willing to try to help a friend and he's an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he, I would call him foppish, right, to be completely sure. honest. I, I, in terms of the, the Bernie voice and the, the like recitation of poetry, what I love is the combination of the Lovecraft voice and the Bernie voice is like early on in that story where he's quoting uh, Poe. He's quoting Poe. Mm-hmm. Um, a short time later, we turned into a drive and the towers of the Priory, formerly part of the estate of the Norris family, hove into view. The light was dim, but I could not help thinking about that morbid American poet, the chappy who went about sozzled with a raven on his shoulder, don't you know? The one who penned those immortal lines, tum-tum-tum-tum-tum-tum-tum-tum, by good angels, tum-tum-tum, tum-tum-tum-tum, stately palace, tum-tum-palace, reared its head. And that's all he can remember from yeah. the Poe. And it's great. And he doesn't even, like, he doesn't even care. No, like, that, that's good enough. Like, he, he feels like he got the gist of it there, even though, like, most of it was just like, da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. Really he knew what he was thinking, right? <laughs> he had an idea. He didn't even get a rhyming couplet in there. What the? <laughs> uh, uh, I do, I, I'm sorry, but I just noticed this, um, this other line in the, since we were talking about the dinner conversation, um, and I think this illustrates the character too. So De La Porra says, preserved in balladry too, though not illustrating the same point is the hideous tale of Mary De La Porra, who shortly after her marriage to the Earl of Shrewsfield was killed by him and his mother, both of the slayers being absolved and blessed by the priest to whom they confessed what they dared not repeat to the world. Frightful dragon, was she? Sounds a bit like my Aunt Agatha, says and- Wooster. <laughs> You're like, okay. Murderous? <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's terrified by, of his Aunt Agatha. The, the story is actually very, very good about all the callbacks. Like in The Rats and the Walls at the beginning, they mention cats. And Bertie says, as a rule, I'm fond of the feline tribe, but in the aftermath of a certain luncheon engagement, of which more later, cats were for the moment low on my list. It's a reference to a very specific event from one of the stories. And like the author hits all of the points. It's really good. When he makes the acquaintance of... Randolph Carter, who obviously gets a nickname because that's what all the characters that he would interact with do. It's Randy Carter, right? Mm-hmm. When he makes the acquaintance of Randy, and Randy's an author, like, Bertie takes the occasion to mention that once he wrote an article for his aunt Dahlia's magazine, Milady's Boudoir, titled, What the Well-Dressed Young Man is Wearing. Yes. And, like, this is like, it's like if you're a, it's like if you're watching Arrested Development, right? It's like, these are, yes, he absolutely needs to mention that he once wrote an article called What the Well-Dressed Young Man is Wearing for Milady's Boudoir, because that's exactly what he would do if he meets an author. 
Right. Like later on, he he he, he, he manages to himself. He right? manages to work in the fact that he once won a prize in school, like when he was in like primary school for Bible knowledge. <laughs> it's like, even though if you're familiar with the stories, he probably cheated to get it. But like you know, like all of these little, very very specific callbacks, um, are are well done. I mean, like it's it's the it's that kind of like nerdish pleasure of like incorporating all the things, right? Well, and I also think, like, as someone who doesn't relate to Jeeves and Wooster, there is just something kind of fun reading about this character, even though, like, his callousness does hit me <laughs> at times. But this reading from this character's point of view, you know, he's got a humorous take on everything. Oh, yeah. I, I, sorry, I, I need to mention one more. Um, <laughs> when he's talking about Arthur Germain from from whatever Lovecraft story that is. He calls him a poet and a dreamer, the sort of chappy who after a few quick ones would declare that the stars are God's daisy chain. And you have to be like, yes, the stars are God's daisy chain mm-hmm. as, a, as a Jeeves and Wooster story. Uh, <laughs> I mean, as a Jeeves and Wooster reader. Uh, it's so good. Anyway, um, it, it's, there's a lot of callbacks. Um, he, he ends up engaged to a woman who is who is fond of like poetical phrases like that. And he's horrified by existing next to somebody who might claim that the stars are god's daisy chain and i don't know anyway yeah. um we should probably talk more about any of the rest of the story it's, it's one of those beard marriages huh? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well uh, yeah it's hard to know where to go because the, yeah there's a lot of talk about a lot of different things i i do want to mention that the main thing that made this delightful to read for me um, was the quality of the writing itself like yeah there's definitely some idioms where i had to like look it over and be like what what but it's also the Wooster character's voice like I mentioned in the start he has many different ways to refer to his head right I and that's just the you know but there's also just it's on it's so ongoing with the humor and also just like just phrases like uh oh the rats the rats do come out and there's an emulsion of cats and rats Ugh. Or very frequently, Jeeves shimmers in, I think. <laughs> yeah, shimmers into the room because he's supposed to be so light on his feet, you know, you don't notice him. And little turns of phrase, but I'll I'll also get to some longer quotes as we go on. But do we want to say more about... Um, the rats in the wall specifically? Rat- yeah. No, not really, I think. The, the thing is, I found the pastiche of Woodhouse very fun. but. The if he was trying to do clever things with Lovecraft, it usually kind of fell a little flat to me. And for one thing, the stories he's picking to work off of, the second story in here is based on Cool Air. And the only thing that sticks in my memory about Cool Air by Lovecraft is the fact that it's titled Cool Air. And I'm like, that's an odd name for a Lovecraft story. I've never heard that phrase in relation to Lovecraft before. No one cares about it. And then the third one, it seems like it's going to be based on The Strange Case of Charles Dexter Ward, but it kind of just incorporates a little bit of that, and it's based on the music of Eric Zahn, which, okay, I guess. And it's like the things that happen in these stories with the Lovecraft stories, the reasons for Jeeves and Wooster being involved tend to be a little bit thin, and like they don't tend to, I don't know. Like, What do you feel about the Lovecraft portion of these stories, Story? I feel like it's kind of just overshadowed yeah. by the the Wooster voice and like the descriptions of Jeeves, which are just so on point. Like I was actually just looking at one is um everyone's screaming, right? My God, mm-hmm. great Scott. And Jeeves raised his left eyebrow a quarter of an inch, a sure sign of emotional distress. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, mostly you're hearing Wooster's voice, but like every description he has of Jeeves is just this like kind of wonderful humorous the great characterization on both and the lovecraft stories i think just sort of serve as a background for it like mm-hmm. yeah yeah i don't know it's it's hard to describe i also found it a little weird like i keep mentioning things like oh the zoog offhand comment that birdie makes in the first story birdie's an oblivious english you know rich guy mm-hmm. and wooster is birdie is and Jeeves has all of this Lovecraftian knowledge, as if in as if right. in addition to being super confident about everything else and knowledgeable, he also is just like totally familiar with all of like Thulu Mythos knowledge that he possibly could be. 
But in the other two stories, uh, Bertie's often dropping comments about Lovecraftian things, like, um, like yeah, he mentions Shoggoths, he mentions Zoogs. He's like his face was as blank as a night gaunt, and it's like, wait, how? That feels like mm-hmm. a different premise. It feels like a different like relationship between the stories than I was expecting from the first story. Right, because when you talk about these horrors as if they're a known factor in the universe, I feel like that's not quite as Lovecraftian, or at the very least, like, knowing or having, you know, like, cultists know, like, certain people know in Lovecraft, or, you know, scholars know. Um, and I guess Jeeves is a scholar, but to Wooster is it, and to casually drop that as a description, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it kind of just feels like more like a fan using that language rather than someone who would actually be in his position in the world. Because, like, I doubt he's ever seen a night gaunt. <laughs> no, how how would he? I mean, it would yeah. ha- it's very... Or studied a depiction of them. Like, Jeeves might know what they look like from drawings because he's well-read, but... Those strike me as odd. The only one that kind of worked for me is when he's talking about Arthur Germain at the start of The Rummy Affair of Young Charlie, the third story. Um, Arthur Germain is the main character in, I don't know, the case facts in the case of Arthur Germain or whatever. It's another one where it's like, one of your ancestors was an ape. What horrible, horrifying madness. Um, so so, yeah, so the only thing that kind of works for me there is like, um, Bertie just kind of casually offhandedly mentioned like, oh yeah, his white ape ancestors, like, like everybody knows that like one of his ancestors was an ape. It's fine. It's like, uh, his death was not. I can assure you that those rumors about his first seeing a boxed object which had come from Africa are only so much rot. It was his looking like a supporting player out of an Edgar Rice Burroughs jungle thriller, meaning like being dressed all like flammably, not this object, which was merely the mummy of one of his white ape ancestors that led to his awful doom. And so I just like the offhanded like, oh yeah, no, his he had a white ape as like his great-grandmother or whatever, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that undermines Lovecraft in a way that I want Lovecraft to be undermined anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very fine with like, Birdie doing that. <laughs> but it sounds like the issue is that the uh, Jeeves stuff undercuts Lovecraft in some place that, places that doesn't make sense, but some places it's funny. I mean, I, I think Tori was right. We're saying it's kind, of a, it's kind of just drowned out by the tone of the Woodhouse because it's being written as Woodhouse pastiche from the perspective of Birdie with all those conversations. And so like whatever's going, but so whatever's going on with the Lovecraft, I don't really care about. I kind of care about how they're talking about it. Because that's the fun part. But it's not like any of this is like, none of it is actually personally affecting to Bertie. It's not like one of the stories where like, he is, you know, entangled in an engagement that he needs to get out of or like very distressed over like, you know, some, some other thing. He's kind of disassociated from the action. And so I don't really care either. I feel like. A lot of the time in these stories. And so like, so I understand the authors, you know, um, what they're trying to do here by folding them in. But I don't know. It, it, the Lovecraft stuff just didn't, didn't resonate with me in these stories. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it does. I wonder what the motivation was, actually. I mean, like, I, we kind of touched on it, you know, mm-hmm. the contemporaneous authors and like, people wanting to have that sort of like nerd experience of it, you know, to deep dive. But mm, it's funny. I feel like these stories are well-written and like successful in their own right, but maybe as a crossover in and of themselves, not that successful. Well, I do want to say like, he's not the only guy to have this drive though. And I think think it's supposed to be a funny juxtaposition, right? It's like the breezy comedy of Woodhouse with like the fairly overwrought like you know in trying to be really intense not emotional but like um trying to be intellectual horror of lovecraft right, right? right. Mm-hmm. and so i also went back and reread um what's the name of the story uh what ho great old ones or something from what uh, <laughs> From the Black Dossier, the, the Alan Moore Tell story. Oh. Um, what Ho Gods of the Abyss is the name of the story. Oh, right, of course. Yeah. Um, and he, so he, he wanted to do the same thing. He, and, you know, in, in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Alan oh, Moore right, is right. all about 
what characters existed at the same time frame that I can just like put in a story together. (laughs) And so he does. And like he has a little text story in the Black Dossier that's also Jeeves and Wooster slash Lovecraft. And I think it works. So in some way, I feel like he has a better way of doing it where he doesn't replicate a story. He brings in some Cthulhu Mythos stuff and, you know, involves like uh, Fink Nozzle, who's one of the, the reoccurring like uh, characters in the Jeeves and Wooster stories and such. Fink Nozzle. But in other ways, I feel yeah. like he didn't really. Yeah, Gussie Fink Nozzle, I believe is his name. <laughs> he's pretty much what it sounds like. I think he's the one who's obsessed with newts. Like as a <laughs> as a hobby. How is that what it sounds like? <laughs> Does, doesn't a fink nozzle sound like they would be obsessed with newts? No. <laughs> Maybe in the Harry Potter universe. It sounds like a nozzle. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, like you put it's like attached to your head that your brain leaks out of. <laughs> no, it sounds like it sounds like two insulting words, a fink and a nozzle. How's think insulting? <laughs> I thought it was fink with an F. Oh. I, I think so. Okay. Fink nozzle. I have new questions. But. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in some ways, I kind of liked Alan's more, Alan Moore's instincts in that way. But you read that story and you're like, um, Cannon's love for Woodhouse oozes out of his writing. It does not happen with Alan Moore. Like, Jeeves and Wooster oh, yeah. barely talk to each other in that story. And like, Jeeves I mean, Alan and, Moore doesn't love Wooster, anything. So. Fair enough, right? <laughs> but it's like Jeeves and Wooster dialogue is the heart of any of these stories. It's like they need to be talking to each other about stuff like on the regular. And like without that, it's like what's even going on in this story? I mean, it's still nominally written from Bertie's perspective, but it like it doesn't sound right at all without like the voice of Jeeves being fairly prominent in it. Well, you know, and I I think you're right, Amato, that like the idea behind this narrative was to have the Lovecraft be the vehicle for what they yeah. really love to write about and to create that juxtaposition, which, right. you know, it's a hard juxtaposition to get to because um, the tones are just so different, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know exactly where I was going with that, but... <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say is like, yeah, I, I, I read that other story. I, I was less impressed with it than I'd hoped I would be. Um, and I feel like what this story does do really well is the voice and the, the type of humor, even if like I read a story and like after reading something like, um, something fetid, which is the cold air story at the end of it, I'm like, so wait, what was the plot again? What, why were they involving this? Like, or, or no, wait, there was like the other detective guy involved in the music of Eric Zahn thing because, um, because Charles Dexter Ward is trying to get his hands on like information that Eric Zahn has. And so is this detective guy and like all this stuff, like anything related to the plot. It's just kind of like, I don't even remember it, but I, I think I'm talking in circles now at this point and not in the funny way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, to break us out of our loop, I know you want to talk about the art a little bit because this is illustrated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my favorite one is definitely the cover illustration. Um, which, like, at first, I thought might have been, like, a woodblock print because it's so much, like, positive and negative space. But it looks like everything else is just an ink drawing. But what's delightful about the illustrations is that in every one, there's, like, a little element of Lovecraft, a little bit element of horror that's just there to kind of, I don't know, punch it up. Like, it's not even part of the story. Like, there's one where they're eating dinner, and it just like the dinner that uh, Bertie's eating is just like a bunch of like squirmy things and stuff like seafood, like some of it's crawling off the plate. Yeah, it's crawling off the plate. And then there are two people in the background who just are like <laughs> look horrified. And one is holding the woman is like holding a cloth to her nose like the smell is awful or something. Mm-hmm. And that's not part of the story. You know, uh, Wooster's not actually eating in the story like gross things, but it's just that kind of like fun little juxtaposition that the illustrators thought would be funny. For sure. Um, And uh, they're like, they're obsessed with stippling, which is kind of fun. (laughs) Like their figures are a little bit, um, what do I want to say, like awkward, like they didn't really use a lot of reference, but it's pretty cute. I don't know if there's anything you want to say about the illustrations, either of you. No, that's about it. You mentioned the the cover, and the cover shows like a silhouette of Jeeves serving. I, I guess that's another food thing, 
serving another food thing to Birdie, but it's like, it's got like tentacles and is reaching out towards him and he looks horrified. Now, I've never read a copy of any P.G. Woodhouse stories that were illustrated at all, so I don't know whether this is like, you know, supposed to be resembling illustrations for any like edition of the works that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. But it's it's definitely like, it provides some good character itself. There's only like half a dozen of them throughout the three stories, something Mm -hmm. like that, counting the cover. Indeed. Um, I do especially like the restaurant one because, like, Della, you were pointing out the server's <laughs> face, right? It's crazy. He He's smiling, but in, like, a really creepy way. Mm-hmm. Maniacal. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, just taking a quick look at these pictures, they all do seem to have pretty good um, composition. Yeah. They do. They're they're Mostly. very well composed. Great use of positive negative space. Um, I also really like the last one because there's... A line in the the last in the last story, um, they it ends up in a everyone's fighting over this important manuscript that this guy has just written, and there's a line where the guy who's who's he's writing the manuscript furiously, like in a trance. There's a line where his eyeballs pop out and fly about the room, and I think it's supposed to be <laughs> metaphor, but the author uses it literally, <laughs> and, and you eyeballs. see the eyeballs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> floating around the room. Um, and I think they, or the illustrator, I mean, rather, um, I think the illustrator just does an incredible job with, this is what you would think of as illustrations from, you know, I don't know, I guess books that I read as a kid. I'm trying to think of, you know, like older books, you know, where it's just these pen and ink illustrations um, where the uh, the illustrator just kind of like takes a seed and they take the concept, they run with it. Sort of like cover illustrations, right? Where the a lot of the old fantasy books where they're just kind of given a, a brief description and they use this kind of like metaphorical stance <laughs> to des- describe what's happening. I don't know. I, I know the kind of covers you mean where it's like something. In, in this case, I feel like the the artist is playful enough that maybe like they knew that's not really what they meant, but they did it anyway. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, those sorts of covers where it's like someone read a part of this book and then made an illustration based on their understanding of it. Right. <laughs> or what they seized on, you know, what they thought was fun. And I remember it actually reminded me a lot of being a kid and having those book project assignments where you had to illustrate for the book. Mm. And I would seize on stuff like that, too, like the fun <laughs> lines and the metaphors and, and just use that because to me, that was representative of what I really liked about the text. And so I think the illustrator also had kind of like a similar passion for doing that. Mm hmm. We've we've really skimmed over the story's plots themselves, but like I said, that's because I don't really care. Um, is there anything that you want to talk about, like specifically from these stories, or just lines that you, you know, can't avoid repeating on air because they're too funny or anything? Before we start wrapping up, there's definitely several piece lines that I highlighted or little <laughs> quotes, and I. I'm going to look through a little bit to see which ones are the best. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Here's another kind of Lovecraft thing. So in the last story, they've been sort of in t- tasked with um, this young cousin who's just gotten out of school. Um, he's gone he from in America. And um, Bertie's aunt comes and is like, you got to look after him. You got to take care of him. He's in Paris right now. Um, and she's very formidable. So he has to do what she says. And so he and Jeeves go and, and find the young man. But the young man is really like into science and stuff. He's very disaffected. Eventually they realize he's kind of into some Lovecraft type horror cultist shit, whatever right, he's the person into. Is yeah. Charles Dexter Ward, though. Yeah. I think we're supposed to take not yet possessed by his ancestor or whatever. Right, right. Um. And eventually, like, so they track him down, and eventually, um, this whole time, Wooster's been espousing kind of this, like, oh, I hate this horrible science stuff, but that's because the horrible science stuff is these experiments, like, um, in the second story, it's about reanimating dead bodies, and so he's just got this kind of, like, fear of chemicals and labs, because usually that's what it turns out to be, this, like, horrible, not science, like, yeah. Sure. What can I say? Cultist <laughs> yeah. shit? I don't. Yeah. Right, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Lovecraftian magic. I don't know. Was Lovecraft afraid of science? Uh, uh, <laughs> I think Lovecraft was afraid of most things. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, we don't realize that Charlie is the 
the cousin is really into any of this reanimation, weird science potion stuff until um, this certain point where it says um, they just made a friend with someone in his building. It, they go to his place. So our new friends steered us inside his room where our noses were instantly assaulted by the reek of stale cigar smoke, not to mention other evil stenches which I have never smelled elsewhere, with the possible exception of Doc Munoz's fourth, 14th Street bedsitter, which is from the previous story but which seemed to emanate from the test tubes and retorts that filled every nook and cranny of the otherwise spartanly furnished premises. I say, you're not one of these chaps who would like to, I stammered, gripped by a nameless fear. Well, mister, I guess you could say experimenting's kind of a hobby of mine, just as it is Charlie's, by the way. He and I have even swapped a few recipes, or formulas. <laughs> you're like, recipes, and he corrects himself to formulas. I was just like, oh, that's creepy. And it, like a really good way to impart what that nameless fear actually is, right? Right. And there's a lot of other just like good little lines, too. Like, young Charlie could do more harm than a resurrected wizard left alone in a sandbox of essential salts. <laughs> Right, but that's weird because that's referring to the strange case of Charles Dexter Ward. I know. The character of whom is in this story, but has not yet resurrected his ancestor using their essential salts. So I, I don't know. It's weird. Maybe that was too referential. I didn't quite pick up on that. That was supposed to be the character, but I thought that was a, like a good little metaphor. I like, I like the little bits where he just works in a little bit of Lovecraftian language, where, I don't know, um... He describes what's going on with Doc Munoz in the story Cold Air or like whatever he's observed. And Jeeves comments, most eldritch, sir. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, anyway, shall we wrap this up? I think if I'm ever in a Call of Cthulhu campaign, I'm just going to make a plight butler. Oh, I would play Jeeves in a Call of Cthulhu campaign. Right. Except that, you know, then it would be out of character for him to die. Not out of character for a Call of Cthulhu story. That's well, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Tori, um, yeah, they're short stories, and we are not the most knowledgeable people. And I think we can probably wrap up our discussion of Scream for Jeeves. Is there any, or I guess we should say, what did you like the least, or think could be improved? Um. Well, I mean, we've sort of hit on the main thing I think is that you know some of the it, it, like the crossover doesn't quite work Lick. yeah like in that sense and like especially you pointing out to me that even the salts thing was just supposed to be a reference to the original source I was like oh well that's not as clever as I thought um, in fact it kind of works at cross purposes but yeah, because they're uh, in that story, Wh whatever, right? <laughs> but I don't know, I think that's probably the biggest complaint. But I did also want to touch on the fact that, like, I thought that this might have been written much earlier. Um, especially now that I realized it was 94, there is a there's a few things where I there's a housekeeper for Dr. Munoz mm -hmm. who is supposed to be from Barcelona and has probably the worst Castilian accent I've ever heard. I was going like, to bring that up too. That character <laughs> is very distracting. Yeah. And, like, doesn't seem right. No. And and there's just a few times where, especially because, like, this is actually, I think, she's insulted multiple times for having facial hair that's visible. Mm -hmm. And um, he also insults his friend, Tubby is his nickname. Yes. Frequently calling him like basically horrible things, you know, like I don't know. I I don't need to get into it. He just yeah, he's very fat shaming and he's very shaming of this woman's appearance and her accent is just horribly written in a way that I just cannot explain how someone in 94 would come to the conclusion that that's a Spanish accent. I assume he's trying to expand on some comment, though Lovecraft would never have, like, actually given such a character lots of dialogue. But I assume he's, like, expanding on something from the story Cold Air. I can't confirm that because I, like everyone else in the world, have never read Cold Air. Um, but yeah, it's it's distracting and it's insulting and it's, like, kind of a little bit more mean-spirited to those characters than it seems like the rest of the tone is. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and the housekeeper also has a son who doesn't understand what he's asking for, and he basically calls him an idiot for it. And like, yeah, just I don't know. I don't understand that no, stuff. I, so I, I, yeah, pretty, I think it's pretty offensive. I think that bear's calling out. Yeah. Um, and I just kind of—I guess I have to repeat my same thing, where like the the stories themselves seem kind of too intricate without like that actually going anywhere with the characters that we're invested in um and uh, it didn't grab me yeah oh um and sorry before i forget on that original point i understand that i think honestly that the author is going for characterization of of wooster's perspective when he does say these insulting things it's just like i'm not sure if it works well yeah and especially since you're supposed to like birdie like, mm-hmm. you know, he's not supposed to be an off-putting character. Yeah, it makes and him so really hard to like. And then he doesn't care when his friend dies, the one he's been insulting that, for being fat the whole that time. That was also a weird... Yeah. I mean, th- I think that was another attempt to juxtapose the tones where it's like, oh, like someone died at the end of the Lovecraft story. It's like, well, you know, I got right, to move on. Right. What, what, like, you know, kind of vibe. But it's it's a little odd. Yeah, and again, I guess this is just where the bleed over doesn't, it should have been more of a harsh exposition and the bleed over is not serving what they're intending to do, mm-hmm. is, would be my opinion. That sounds like the uh, synthesis between the two franchises didn't work out too well. I don't think so. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's yeah, it, 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 it doesn't click for me. That um, being said, I think those are, relatively minor like well they're major points but they're minor parts of the text it all in all i really liked reading this well yeah and that's because i think the praise is that the writing style and tone is very on point and so he's doing a very on point pastiche of one of the most like famously entertaining comic writers of the 20th century so i guess that might be another complaint for me is like if that's the main thing i'm getting out of this which it is, I could just go read more PG Wood- Woodhouse. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's fair. I, I didn't really need the Lovecraft part. And I, there is a place to get Jeeves and Wooster without the Lovecraft part. Um, so, so maybe it's not very completely successful to me as a reader. But, but I do want to praise the tone and the writing because it tends to be very entertaining and the voices tend to be very good. Yeah. Um, and again, like, there's so many good pieces of writing. Like, this author knows how to paint a picture. Like when they show up in the second story, which is, yeah, you know, the doctor who's doing experiments on like trying to reanimate people after death, basically. And they show up at his cold, cold laboratory, which of course Wooster hates the cold because I don't know if that's canonical or not, but it doesn't works ring a bell, but the, probably. <laughs> well, yeah, but it like works for the story, especially for his horror. It's like, um, so he shows up there with a friend. As we crossed the threshold, we were stuck by a blast of chill air that would have staggered Scott of the Antarctic. Refrigerating machinery resembling some futurist's nightmare and rumbling like a locomotive filled up about half the room, which smelled like a perfume emporium of the sort patronized by the cheaper class of shop girl. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot. Yeah. I, I had, uh, there's, but like, it paints a picture especially a futurist's nightmare i instantly thought (laughs) of metropolis i was like yeah that's a very good evocative phrase and it's not one lovecraft would have used right Mm -mm. even his most evocative that's not the kind of thing he said right and it makes too much sense (laughs) right exactly (laughs) well and i don't know what woodhouse is writing is like do you think that is also a pastiche or do you think that's an authorial invention? I think the only weird thing about it is that it implies that Birdie is familiar with art movements. <laughs> yes. And that does happen a few times. Right. Yeah. Which which seems a little bit off, off point to me. But clear painted picture. And then like, we already talked about the funny dialogue. So. Yeah. All right. And so that's it. I'm glad that our recommendation is at least partly mixed. Because there's no way to read this story online, and I kind of <laughs> failed to scan it properly. Um, and also, I guess I probably should check with PH Cannon before doing such a thing, because I, I don't know if this book is still in print or what. Anyway, the point is, you can find Scream for Jeeves in a reprinted volume called The Lovecraft Papers, but you can't find it like on the internet. It's not that kind of fanfic. <laughs> um, but if you want to seek it out, 
the volume of Lovecraft Papers also comes with that little novella um, pulp time, like I said, which is more Arthur, uh, Sherlock Holmes slash Lovecraft as a character who um, in his essay at the at the end, um, P.H. Cannon comments that like, unlike unlike Woodhouse and Arthur Conan Doyle, who have like created these memorable, like iconic characters that live on in the public consciousness, Lovecraft never made a character worth remembering. But he says, like, the thing is, Lovecraft is the author of himself, who is the the weird iconic character like that people remember. It's like what a strange guy Mm -hmm. and like so even though no one cares about any character he ever developed you know in a story which was not his interest like he's still kind of like hangs on in the public consciousness himself um strange life strange person strange like life story yeah anyway so so i understand people kind of wanting to use him in that like rpf like yeah you cross over lovecraft himself with with Sherlock Holmes. You don't cross over like whoever the heck was the main character in The Call of Cthulhu with Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Cthulhu. <laughs> well, I mean, I would also read that. <laughs> like Sherlock Holmes and Cthulhu become buddies. Solve a crime. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> video game Cthulhu saves the world. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah. Wait. Well, you know, the, <laughs> everyone's favorite thing to do with, you know, the Cthulhu mythos is take the piss out of it and not take it seriously because Lovecraft already did enough seriousness for like, you know, ever. Yeah. So you got to undermine it one way or the other. Yeah. I don't mind undercra- uh, undermining Lovecraft. No, no, no one does. <laughs> Undercrafting love. <laughs> <laughs> undermining <laughs> Minecraft. Right. <laughs> I, I don't mind loving Minecraft. No. <laughs> <laughs> Minecraft. Neither do my love. kids. <laughs> okay. So. It did occur to me, though, that, like, it's impossible to look at this whole Lovecraftian thing through an objective lens in our current culture because mm-hmm. it's so infused. But, like, I I was also reflecting, what was someone in 1994 thinking about Lovecraft, right? Because, right. like, now we've got Cthulhu plushies in the right. bookstore, you know? Yeah, like, that was not so much a thing. Oh, it was certainly wasn't when we were growing up either, but, like, it still was kind of part of the popular pulp like intersecting with Dungeons and Dragons yeah and yeah stuff. because Call of Cthulhu is such an old yeah. well-established and relatively well done in some ways role-playing game mm-hmm. uh, and like that's one of the things sure. I feel like that that's how it got inserted into nerd culture and then because nerd culture became world culture like you know yeah. that's just he's just kind of around now in the public consciousness I think you, you can yeah. describe stuff as Cthulhu and a lot of people would understand you well, <laughs> I mean, now yeah yeah the general vibe sure, sure. But yeah, I'm like wondering about Cannon's experience. He was born in 51 and like my dad didn't know Lovecraft. I'm sure somebody's dads did, but yeah. <laughs> I think there was a period where he was just like a cult, you know, author mm-hmm. for a little while before he became like just disseminated. A genre. For right. sure. Well, and that's the other thing is <laughs> Not like, even a genre so much as like an aesthetic. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it's like you just tag the word Lovecrafting onto a franchise or an IP or something and that changes it. Well, well <laughs> like, you know, you know, th- that's true is that like there is the aesthetic, but there's also the genre because so many things will be like, oh, yes. And there's slumbering ancient deities that are like, you know, attempting to break into the world and like, you know, crazy cultists are helping them out. Cause like, and it's like you just throw that into like a video game and people do. Well, because like there's this video game that people are playing recently, uh, Dredge, and uh-huh. it was a fishing game, but it's a Lovecraftian fishing game. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds like a good crossover. Yeah, it, it works pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my first exposure to Lovecraft was probably playing um, Arkham Horror, the board game. Sure, sure. Um, back when I was like 18 or something, I really had no exposure. So I'm, I'm not a horror fan, but, but you don't have to be a horror fan. Like it's so pervaded the culture, but I love Arkham Horror, the board game. It's well, a the great most, game. The most horrifying thing about Arkham Horror is right. the rules complexity. Once you add any number of expansions. I, th- I thought the most yeah, horrifying thing was how long it took to play. Oh, yeah, no, you're right. That, that actually you win. is. That's, that's correct. Yeah. I was going to be like, Scythe is probably more complicated rules-wise. But yeah, taking that time to play with Arkham. Oh, my God. Anyway, point is, um, you can... Arkham Horror is not horrifying. It's no. an adventure-type game. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and you, so are you, so you many shot things. Off the shotgun, you know? Exactly. <laughs> so like, I don't even know what to think about what Lovecraft's works have become for us. I mean, they've become very divorced from Lovecraft himself, obviously, but also from even his own stories. Like, I can't even oh, imagine the number of people. Yeah, or theming. Yeah, the number of people who have never read Lovecraft but are totally familiar with like the cosmology that's been created around his work. I've read very little. I mm-hmm. read Call Cthulhu. Yeah, same. And I think like, that's very it. little. Okay. Yeah, like that, that's the only. Few. But I. <laughs> I am knowledgeable just from well, I also grew up around a motto too. So Yeah, there you go. <laughs> they had volumes in the middle school library of Lovecraft reprints. I that, remember checking them out. Yeah, that's where I read uh Call of Cthulhu. They had this like there, there was wow. that series where like they got some one to do the covers, and their brief had clearly been like, This is a horror anthology. And so they were like, okay, got it. Skeletons. <laughs> And like blood and a black cat or something, something like that. <laughs> yeah, and it's like they were kind of creepy covers. And you look at it, and it's like this has nothing to do with the contents of this book. Wait, what did I just read? <laughs> <laughs> right. I remember those covers distinctly. It's so odd. Like especially that they had them in the middle school library to me because I'm not sure if middle schoolers. Well, they. No, yeah. I, I checked it I out. Know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Never mind. <laughs> Think about what I read in middle school. I'm like, never mind. Not horror was I horror always freaks me out, but someone had shown me Junji Ito in high school. I probably would have just passed out on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Junji Ito is very creepy and has some good Lovecraftian content too. Mm, True that. Like, though I've mentioned this before. Oh my god! A lot of times, what I find creepiest about Junji Ito is how not insane people are going. (laughs) And so, like, reading Uzumaki, how about? Mm -hmm. Like, that main character girl, I forget her name, it's like she sees such horrifying shit, one thing after another, and she's basically okay. And it's like, I would be gibbering in a corner like a lot of the characters (laughs) are throughout, like, you know, several chapters into that. And somehow she's just, like, still from a sane, grounded vantage point, watching all of this, like, complete madness and horror ensue. And I found that very unsettling, frankly. Really? Yes. No, I feel like the stable character... Well, I mean, I guess Jinji Ito's art just inspires creepiness, no matter what. Like, you can't... like. Have you read his cat manga? Yes. Yeah, so good. I own it. I own it for over a decade. He has a manga about him having a cat. And he draws it in his style. <laughs> and so he'll draw his like horrifying <laughs> facial expression cats, thing yeah. of him being like, so cute. <laughs> or, you know, that kind Yan of and thing. Mu, yeah. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> no, good I stuff. bought that when it like, it didn't come out that long ago. I bought it when it came out. I love it. <laughs> love it. It's great seeing him like know what he does and not take himself too seriously. That's good. totally. Well, yeah, there's this part where like, because it's his wife's cats. Mm-hmm. Um, We've really gotten off of it. <laughs> no, no, no. The, the rats in the walls. There's cats in it. It's all the same yeah, topic. Totally. No, it's his wife's cats. But he's like, at first, he's freaked out by how like close she is to the cat. So he'll draw <laughs> his wife's face in like a horrifying way when she's like playing with them. There's one scene where she's playing with them and her legs are like one is like above her head and she's twirling the um, you know, cat, cat toy. toy. Yeah. yeah, and it just she just looks like this creepy little spider lady. And then he'll like you know, a story where he wakes up one night and he sees the cat in the hallway and he thinks it's a giant snake and then, oh no, it's a cat. And yeah, it's, and then eventually he starts to love the cats and then he'll draw his face is like totally horrifying. He's like, come love me. (laughs) It's so good. Uh, This manga was made for me. (laughs) All right. Uh, all right, let's wrap up then. <laughs> I know, I know, we're we're going in a lot of circles. What did we talk about today? I can't remember. Um, I, I don't know. Junji Ito. Junji Ito. Yeah, we're all tired. This was episode one hundred and fifty-eight. We're reaching the numbers where, like, every time I say it, I'm saying it in disbelief. One hundred and fifty-eight <laughs> of retro fanfic retrospective. Scream for Jeeves by P. H. Cannon. You can find it published in a book <laughs> like on an online bookstore or something mm-hmm. yeah i think you can find scream for jeeves published by itself but most likely you would find the reprint in the lovecraft papers by ph cannon that's c-a-n-n-o-n not canon like fanfic canon 
you know, the other canon that no one cares about. Right. <laughs> the intro song for the podcast is The Weekly Fair off the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. You can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. The podcast is edited by Della Rose, who is like like a butler, but for a podcast. Is that is that the right term? Uh, you feel good about that? <laughs> <laughs> podcast <No>? valet. Valet. <laughs> Pod, podcast. It. No. Po- okay. No. No. Maybe not. <laughs> Cast it. <laughs> you cast it. <laughs> uh, that's why I say it every time I upload a file. <laughs> you can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the episode, you can contact us on Twitter at retrofanfic, Facebook at retrofanfic. Send us an email at retrofanfic, retrofanfic, uh, retrofanfic, retro what I was about to say. <laughs> an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com or leave comments or reviews on the podcast service you're using to listen to this thing that we're doing. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. I'm Della. <laughs> we're just three Earth life forms trying to be nice to each other. Until next time, take care. You were having like a gazillion breakdown at the end there. <laughs> <laughs> retrofanfic, retrofanfic, retrofanfic. <laughs> The retro fanfics in the walls. Oh, I'm no. he's still going to this day. <laughs> this fanfic has driven him insane. <laughs> Why is it canon with only one N? I never asked that question. That's the word. But why?